everybody. I, uh, I'm tan, rested, and ready. Well, not tan, but I'm rested and ready. I, I, w- I was in San Diego uh, taking some time off with my wife and kids, uh, but we also did the first annual uh, TPUSA uh, Faith Pastor Summit. We were expecting, we, want, we were shooting for 250. We took a small venue, and we were at 510 packed to capacity. So. And I was cracking up because uh, you, you get flack, like, like Rick was saying, you're trying to, you know, and, and assembling pastors together is, is like trying to herd cats. It's hard to do. And then, and, and then if they're not denominationally aligned, like all of them, like, you know, well, then, then they, they kill each other. It's just, no, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'm not, no. But, but what was so fantastic about it is Every pastor, and they attended with their wives, most of them did. Every pastor understood the severity of what our nation is facing. And they all realized, it was almost like the underlying theme, they all realized that we may have theological differences, but if we don't get liberty right, we'll be discussing those from prison. And I mean, we had, you know, the backward caller Lutheran, you know, there, and then you had the swinging from the chandelier charismatic, and... And the five-point Calvinist, uh, they were all kind of, they'd have lunch together and they would survive, they'd live. <laughs> it, was, it, was an, it was an amazing uh, couple of days. And the speakers, um, Rick was talking about how you get flack and, and things get to be a blur for me a little bit, so I, I probably already covered this with you, but uh, we invited Dr. James Lindsay, who's, who, who, as you know, has spoken here. And Dr. James Lindsay uh, does not profess to be a Christian, although he is very close. (laughs) That's my opinion. And it's a good one. But Dr. Lindsay, we invited him. And the Christian Research Network, CRN, they're heresy hunters. Uh, And and they do do good work, but they manage to nationally deride our conference by stating Charlie Kirk and Turning Point USA Faith is headlining an atheist at a pastor's conference. Yes, we are. The the moral pietism of the body of Christ is nauseating. And I ask you and all in Christendom, Dr. Lindsay came to speak on a topic he knows better than any person in this country, critical race theory. His scholarship is unequaled. Do people place the same requirements upon the pilot that flies the plane that they're to be a Christian? Or do you trust their skills to land it and take it off properly? When you get a surgery, do you want a Christian or someone who is the finest in the area which you need help? But in Christendom, with our litmus test, that's moral pietism. We justify that we're better by defining what we don't do as opposed to what we do. Dr. Lindsay's been ostracized and alienated on both sides, and that's for him to be in a room full of pastors as he has been obliterated in, in the culture of academia. And all anyone is trying to do is contend for truth. And in a pluralistic society coming together, and what's fascinating to me is I, I, I responded to a letter, and I was gonna read it to you, but I forgot to bring it up to y'all. I responded to a letter I received from a couple that, that had read the uh, Christian Research Network article. And they, 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 they found my address and figured since I'm co-chairman, let me, let, let's, attack him. They were gracious though, I have to admit. They, it was a husband and wife. And I wrote a letter back to them. And to their credit, they wrote a letter back, understanding. Folks, um, this entire nation is on the brink. You had an FBI raid of a former president of the United States of America. I don't, I don't know if anyone understands the ramifications of that. And anyone affiliated with him is being raided. 
We're, we're watching, and then as, 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 as Joseph Bondarenko, Pastor Joseph Bondarenko, stood in front of these ministers, a man who spent 10 years in a Soviet gulag, 23 hours a day in solitary confinement. And his exhortation to them is, you better get along because you're, all you're gonna have when tyranny rises. Tyrants, tyrants cannot contend with truth, they must suppress it. And they can either manipulate the pulpits or destroy them. And, and some of you think, well, that's hyperbole. Why are you being so intense? Not here. None of you feel that way. I, but I do know this. Our pastors in Tennessee, which is the, not just the Bible Belt, it's the buckle. <laughs> they, they marvel at, at your, your, your preparedness here at God Speak. Because in Tennessee, they think everything's fine. And they, they put up with avoiding those things that would bring such controversy. There's concerted effort to cause the church to step away from the public square. It's the only way to obtain the third leg of a three-legged stool to withhold, glo I mean, to, to implement globalism. And they've infiltrated the seminaries of America. And, and, and it's an age-old argument. And in infiltrating the seminaries of America and affecting it, they, they created this statement that has been, well, ingrained in the Christian mind for the last 50 years. We just do the gospel. Don't you feel good about saying that? We just preach the gospel. I love the gospel. Gospel means, it's, it's a Greek word, oulangelion, which means good news. Christ's son left the glory of heaven's throne for the humiliation of an earthly cross. That he would die in your place and mine. He would be crucified, buried, and resurrected on the third day. He would overcome sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that his sacrifice would be sufficient to satisfy the justice of God the Father. That if you believe in your heart and you confess with your tongue Jesus is Lord, you will be saved to the glory of the Father. And it's by grace through faith that you've been saved. It's not of works lest any man should boast. That's good news. That's good news. But that good news is transformative. It changes the world. It doesn't submit to tyranny. That same God who hung on that cross, nails did not hold him. His love for you and me did. He served us. His dying breath to tell us dies. Finished, it's paid for, paid in full. But as we covered in the last time I was with you, of the seven last statements on the cross, one in particular was when he turned to one of the two thieves that bookshelved him. They both mocked and ridiculed him. But one finally realized something. He turned to the other and he says, stop it. We deserve what we're getting. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to the Lord, Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And the Lord said to him, today, you will be with me in paradise. You get it. You don't have to get yourself off that cross to get baptized. You don't have to say the four spiritual laws. You recognize that you are under the law, you have broken that law, and that my death on this cross has covered the justice required because blood must be shed for the remission of sin, and you have called me Lord. And you know that I don't deserve this, but I have died for you, and you have recognized you do deserve this. And when we're honest with God, he's merciful with us. That is good news. And here is where... Um, America's in trouble. 
and we're gonna cover it. And we're also gonna cover the great, great hope that awaits us. And so if you have a Bible, as we've been going through the Anchored series, I was, I was thrilled, Rick and I seldom cover what, we never really talk about what we're teaching. You Saturday, I do Sunday. We're literally right there as they're finishing the announcements. I said, what did you teach on last night? He said, Romans 12. I go, funny, I'm doing Romans 13. So if you have a Bible, open up to Romans 13. If you don't, these lovely folks will give you one. Romans 13. I stood before the pastors as I jokingly called us the island of misfit toys. I'm fascinated what God has assembled in the season since this marathon of tyranny has just steadily been pounding upon all of us. The, the Holy Week where they commanded we lock down and, and, and the Palm Sunday where we refused and the lawsuits and the contempt charges and being brought before the magistrates and the fines and the ridicule in the community and the accusations of super spreaders and grandma killers and, 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 and the destruction of our economy the transference of wealth, the obliteration of small businesses, the corruption of our medical community, the poisoning of our children, on and on and on. And as pastors began to realize, even though they never wanted to be a part of this, and no one signed up for it, and, and quite honestly, much like Naomi Wolf, although she's a not a self-professing Christian, but I, she's, she's getting close. It's funny that the, the most tenacious freedom-fighting people in this nation are not believers. They're, 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 they're non-believers. And they're being drawn to the church because they know that the source of freedom is absolute truth. And they're wondering who possesses it. And the ones that stand, they're coming to them like moths to a light. And then the church says, why are you having them speak? Because you are not. Amen. Naomi Wolf, when she said, I am no hero, you're just a wussy, and she used another word. <laughs> but she's been a secular, she's been a liberal and a feminist and pro, pro-choice. The, the antithesis of what we would permit in the litmus test of, of Christendom but she's given up cowering, cow, being a coward in, in, the, in the midst of the tyranny. She stands in opposition. I'm, I refuse to do what you're saying I need to do because you have, you, you have no evidence for what you're demanding of us. And she says, do whatever you will. I have come to so appreciate that lady. And she, she said, look, I, did, I wasn't equipped for this. You call me brave. I'm, I'm not brave. You're just a coward. Where you have the ability to make a supreme difference with the influence you possess to stand in opposition to what you know is a lie, you refuse because we say it's, it's pensions over principles. There's something that you're willing, somebody's paid you off or you've got something you're willing to hold more dear than the future of the community in which you have been placed. And you don't want to be the one to be the, the lightning rod for the challenge when you even know it's wrong is what she's saying to her colleagues. And she challenged me. And, and you watch as these, these folks are standing and they're looking for leadership. And they gather. And as they gather, and they understand the tyranny and the suppression of truth, one in particular is I, I looked at Dr. James Lindsay. I, 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 I told this Christian couple in responding to their letter attacking us for having Dr. Lindsay speak, I said, he left academia because of the hypocrisy. 
He's in pursuit of truth. It's brought him here. And he's educated Christendom on something they're woefully ignorant on that's destroying the body of Christ. Critical race theory. Pitting us against one another based on an immutable trait. And most pastors know nothing about it. And if you could have seen the room as Dr. Lindsay's sharing, they are captivated. Copious notes they're taking to the best of their ability, but they, they're transfixed asking for copies, not even knowing any of this. Woefully ignorant as their sheep are being led into slaughter and enslavement. I was thinking of Nicole Pearson. She cracks me up. I, 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 I didn't know what her faith was and she seemed kind of hard charging and a little tomboyish and you know she probably she, she gets in fights and probably wins with beasts of men like just uh. and I, I, I ran across her in the, in the course I don't even know things become such a blur but I've just come to adore her, adore her and her husband Ethan and Ethan's like you know she come to me and she goes I'm going to Sacramento today well it would have been nice to tell me we've got two kids who do I take them with? I mean they were just a whirlwind and struggling they both speak fluent Spanish, and I never even knew that, that her Italian background, her family left Italy under fascism, came to Argentina and left there under fascism, and in both, both cases lost everything and came to America. It's ingrained in her like, I'm not going anywhere. You, you want to fight? Bring it on. And her husband, Ethan, who's a USC lawyer graduate, is like, yeah, I did marry her, you know? <laughs> And watching them not really faith-oriented, but being drawn as we're on the beach in Coronado after the event, and these folks just assembled out of just, just being invited one after another, and we're caring for them. It was my hometown where I grew up, and I'm watching them moved by, by, by sincere Christians, and watching them equip Christians. Oh, God's doing something profound. But in the midst of it all, in the midst of it all, the ridicule. The ridicule comes from the ignorance. We had to, we, we had to address this a minimum of five times in the course of the two and a half days. Romans 13. They, the, the tyrant's favorite verse. Favorite eight verses. Hitler loved this verse. Hitler's theologians loved this verse. Most quoted verse in Nazi Germany. It's amazing how the devil will use the Bible. It was used to suppress the birth of this nation. It's used today by theologians in this nation that are enjoying the freedom established by our founders to decry them as rebels and liberals and poor theologians. I was reading articles in the Gospel Coalition attacking Jonathan Mayhew and our founders as though, and if you don't know the Gospel Coalition, good. Um, and may many not know them until they improve. You, you follow the money too and you see these, they started with noble reasons, but even heroes of mine, as I think of, of Pastor Rick Warren, I, I, was, I was profoundly, I, I was pro, he, God used him profoundly to, to touch my life in a very critical moment in the formation of my Christianity in a, in a personal encounter with him, which is rare for a man who was overseeing a church of a bazillion. And then to watch him embrace and educate and strategize with those who would seek globalism and the suppression of our freedoms. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't even know how to process that. I don't. And, and then for them to use this passage, <clears throat> it's not the first time. And so we took time over the two and a half days to help the pastors navigate the verse that 
they will most certainly be browbeat with. And today you are going to be equipped to equip those pastors and others that they don't need to be browbeat. You just turn it right back on them because the passage is in the favor of the free. Let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Romans chapter 13. I'll begin with verse one. We have simply eight verses. I'll read out loud after I get rid of this frog. I'm back. I got in at uh, 145 this morning. Romans 13, verse one. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good. And you will have praise from the same, for he is God's minister to you for good. Let me read that verse again. Verse four. For he is God's minister to you for good. Pausing for emphasis. I learned that from Congressman McEwen. (laughs) But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, and for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due customs to whom customs Fear to whom fear and honor to whom honor and owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and specifically for this passage, the great blessing and the strength that you have given to me as each of us in the course of our life find that we are drawn to certain things that you've said that mean more to us than others, although everything you have said is living and breathing and profound and sustains and holds us together. But God, we do find ourselves treasuring certain things, and for me, Lord, this is one of them, and I wanna say thank you. Thank you for the timeliness of it. Thank you for these men and women who understand it, and for those who don't, they are so willing to. Thank you for freedom that you've given. Thank you for a direction as to what we're to do with tyrants who seek to suppress that freedom. Thank you for the pastors who stood to come even though they didn't completely understand. They were willing to learn. Lord, thank you for the awakening that's happening across this country. We we pray, Lord, that this nation conceived in liberty and dedicated the proposition that all men are created equal will not perish from the face of the earth. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. And Lord, thank you for this precious fellowship of people. We're family, Lord, and I thank you for the joy it brings my heart to come home. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's have a seat and relax. This passage has been, and they call it exegetical work. Eisegesis is putting in, exegesis is taking out. You're, you're to see a passage and, and, and there's a way to study scripture that is academically correct. We break it down in simplicity where we call it observation, interpretation, application. You observe the text. You interpret the text, meaning in context. You go to the original language. You see the meanings of the word. You want to know it in its entirety, and you want to be able to place it in its context. And that's your interpretation. And you don't get to you don't get to make it up. You want to go to the original source. You want a footnote. You want to have all your ducks in a line, and then your application. Okay, now we know what it means. How does it apply to me and those that I'll be teaching? because you don't just do a Bible study to do a Bible study. Remember, the Bible is the only book in the world. We don't read it, it reads us. 
It's able to divide the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. And so, as countless generations have seen Romans 13, and, and, and really, in the lion's share of history, what we're experiencing in these last, what, 246, 45 years? Help me, please. Six, 240, okay, 246. Anyone want to change that? I was a history major, not math. <clears throat> so in the 246 years of unprecedented freedom, in the 6,000 years of recorded history, this has been an anomaly. It's an enigma. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It was brought about, and I've been listening to Edith Hamilton's book on mythology and its influence in the world, and, and it was a favorite of uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr.'s dad, Robert Kennedy, who was shot in um, the Hilton here in Los Angeles by Sirhan Sirhan in 1968. And listening to Edith Hamilton, she really, she, she was a believer as I've come to understand, and she's looking, and she said that the, the fascinating thing is that early man looked at nature as frightening and they had no idea of civilization. And we don't know how the, the Iliad, the Homer, you know, all of that came together, the Odyssey and the Iliad with Homer, <clears throat> when that appeared. But it had a profound influence on Western civilization because it was the first time a civilization didn't look at nature as dominant, but began to examine man and his ability to overcome. They began to celebrate man. Now, a lot of us think, well, that's egotistical and blah, blah, blah. Well, that's true. But they started to see that, and they didn't have the scriptures, by the way. <clears throat> they, they, they rose to this probably with a gift from God, but we're creating the image of God. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. We're the pinnacle of his creation, and that's, that's the Christian worldview. That's the Jewish worldview. But for the Greek, the pagan, to take a look at mankind and say, there's something significant about this creature. His ability to reason, his ability to contemplate and dwell together in society and to develop tools and to, to, to put together a written language. Of all the creatures and all of, of creation, the ability for me to be making noises from my mouth and as those noises are leaving and entering your ears, you're comprehending and grasping, not all of it, but you're comprehending and grasping <clears throat> what, what I'm thinking. The voice, the ability to speak is, is given to no other creature. Now they, they have instinctual sounds and guttural noises to awaken, but they cannot communicate complete intense thoughts of justice and that we would contend with one another and labor with one another through the spoken word. You're sitting here listening to me speak and, and, and we're all being directed in some capacity. That's what separates us from, from, from the animal kingdom is, is our ability, logos, intellectual ability to speak. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, communicating. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of God. And to what end? Justice. As the Greeks would develop these gods, the gods were men. They weren't these mythical creatures with, with multi-heads and things that they imagined in their nightmares and dreams. No, they, they, they made their gods like themselves. And they, they were relatable. It was almost as though the entire culture was preparing for Emmanuel. God with us, he became flesh and dwelt with man. God of justice, which is interesting because Zeus in the Greek mythology would, would move over the ages to become that God that would contend for the justice of man. That they believed justice was a, 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 a virtue. You would watch Aristotle and they would speak of the highest virtues and they would celebrate man and they would contemplate 
what he could accomplish. They would look at the human body of, of, of young men wrestling and they would marvel at, 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 at the rippling of the muscles and they would bring it out of a cold statue and cause it to look as though it was living. They started to see government and, and how, how man would dwell together. It was the first echo of Western civilization where they, they, they created the ecclesia, the Greek city-state, where they would, they would come and they would, they would decide the welfare of their citizenry by those who had appeared to possess wisdom. It's where Jesus would later use that word that Aristotle had coined hundreds of years before Christ would walk the earth. And he would say, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia, my public square, not church. That, was, that, that word was written by tyrants. Tyrants who wanted the church to be another form of government. And, and then the, the, the church would have the sword and the inquisitions. And when you give the church the sword, it's an awful day. But to have men and women whose hearts are steadfast with an understanding of the moral law of God and who they are and realizing that we're the pinnacle of God's creation, this Greek world and this Jewish world would come together to form a government that our founders, as Abraham Lincoln said in his prayer, we have searched the annals of history, groping as it were in the darkness. And we've forgotten so great a friend who every day we beseech during that war for independence and have we now forgotten so celestial a friend? I propose that we break for three days of fasting and prayer and return. And they did. They were, at, they were at a log jam at the Constitutional Convention, but they returned to develop something so fascinating, a bicameral legislature, upper house, lower house. Retaining the power in the hands of we the people and understanding that man is God's creation and he's in his image and he does have the ability when his heart is steadfast towards the Lord and committed to one another to accomplish great and mighty things they know not of. And when this nation was founded with the understanding of accountability to God and to each other and the freedom of man and the limitedness of government, and the pulpits to proclaim it, as Alexis de Tocqueville said, the French historian, I looked for America's greatness in her seaports, in her areas of commerce, in her schools, but it wasn't until I saw her pulpits aflame with righteousness that I saw what made America great. America's great because America's good. And when it ceases to be good, it will cease to be great. And we dared to have women speak at a pastor's conference. God forbid. Pretty one too, Lila Rose. What a cute name. I remember Lila Rose. She, she wasn't really a church-going believer, although she had had a Catholic influence upbringing. But she got together with this crazy guy, James O'Keefe. He dressed up as a pimp and she dressed up as a prostitute. They were going to UCLA, I think. And they went into a Planned Parenthood pretending as though he was her pimp. And she was underage. And they videotaped it. Got national prominence. And I'm like, who are they? I remember the first time I met her, it was at the Council for National Policy in the Desert. I, I didn't, I was brand new doing this stuff and Congressman McEwen invited me because he had just gotten the head position there. And I went there, I didn't know anybody and M Michelle was with me and we see these two young people sit down at a table on a panel and it's Lila Rose and Charlie Kirk. And I saw Charlie Kirk kind of jumping on Lila because she's too passive and Lila's jumping on Charlie because he's overly aggressive. And, and I'm like, I like this. <laughs> and I've watched over the years as they've, they've ministered to one another, they've continued in the fight for the unborn. And there was Lila, unwavering. And there I was interviewing her and sitting down with her and, and she's moved by all of you. She wants to come here. And, and I said, yeah, 
you, you let a woman speak? Yeah, yeah. I, if anyone's upset, they can let the door hit them on the way out. I, I, at, at this point, look, I know, I know the scripture, I, I hold to the position that women are not to be ordained as far as pastors of the church and like father of a house. But to say that you can't learn from a woman I've learned some of my greatest lessons from my wife. You know, a man, a man chases a woman until she catches him. Women are brilliant. I, I just, I, I'm married? Uh, yeah, I do. I, oh. You don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want that. But I understand the hierarchy of it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Children, obey your parents. It's just, it's a structure. It's a structure. But you can't have a leader without a follower. And anyone who thinks my wife, you know, is, you know, she's my good little woman. And you'll just shut up, do as you're told and like it. And if I want you, no, that's not how it works in our family. <laughs> I'm the head. She's the neck. <laughs> I can't think of a greater authority on the, on, on the defense of the unborn than Lila Rose. So why wouldn't we have her come and speak? Yes. We wanna deal with some medical issue? You bet I'll have Dr. Simone Gold stand behind this wooden stand, but it's sacred. What is sacred about this stand? But it's, it's, it's the bride of Christ. Yes, it is. And she deserves to be well-educated. And we'll take flack. And there'll be times I'm, I'm going to fail and have to be corrected. I, I'm really good at failing. And I'm really, I try to be good at being corrected. Matter of fact, I, I'm, I'm corrected a lot. <laughs> but when you see Romans 13 and you get attacked for that and you, you dust off the old books and you go deep, and you start to realize they're wrong. Greater theologians have existed long before they opened their silly mouths. Jonathan Mayhew stood before a congregation not unlike this on the eastern seaboard of America before it was a nation, just a gathering of colonies subject to a tyrannical king who as Thomas Jefferson said, enforced on those colonies the heinous burden of slavery, taking innocent men and women from their native lands and enslaving them in foreign lands, enforcing that upon these colonies. Being a slaveholder himself in a culture that everybody embraced it and we want to rewrite history and hold them in derision. Let's not forget, they changed the course of their historical era. What have you done in yours? We've sat idly by at the death of over 70 million unborn babies. They fervently fought for the sunset clause and the destruction of slavery. The third of the 27 reasons for the Declaration of Independence to rebel against King George and to sever the ties. The third was Jefferson wrote it himself denouncing that slavery was imposed upon the colonies and it was Georgia and North Carolina that demanded that be removed. And so for the sake of holding together against a king and the greatest empire on the face of the earth that had just defeated the second greatest empire, they realized, well, politics is done by compromise. <clears throat> and they removed it. But Thomas Jefferson didn't let it go away. 
He made sure he would be the author of that declaration of independence when he would write when in the course of human events it becomes necessary, listing the 27 grievances but stating, all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among those being life and liberty and the pursuit of the greatest virtue, happiness. The greatest virtue, happiness, not a feeling. Happiness, according to Aristotle and the Greeks who had helped form the mind of our founders, in this experiment in the early ages of civilization that would influence all of Western civilization, it was there in Aristotle's writings that they would, they would coin that third statement. Jefferson, brilliant, not only, not only fluent in Greek and Hebrew, he would pen that, happiness, not a feeling. We, we've, we've ruined the definition of the word, a feeling. I, I'm so happy. Just so happy. Now, happiness is being and doing what God made you to be and to do. This clicker is good because it's accomplishing what it was designed to do. That's the highest form of virtue, that's happiness. And so, as they established this nation, writing these words, looking at a tyrant, every pulpit in America would say, you have no business rebelling against the king. It's the divine right of kings. You've been born to lick his boots. You've been born to serve him. This is God's discourse. And it's fascinating that kings would always stay in the Old Testament with Saul and David. Who am I to... Challenge the Lord's anointed. And then when they'd get uppity, they'd bring them to Romans 13. And Jonathan Mayhew, he never got to see the War of Independence. He saw the beginnings of it. He never saw the victory. That's why I always say, victory's not determined by the outcome, but by the obedience. He did what God called him to do and he was instrumental in all of you enjoying what you're enjoying and he never got to see it. And he looked at this Romans 13 that we all just stood and read. And he, he defined to the congregation, he said, that disobedience to civil rulers is due exercise of their authority. It's not merely a political sin but a heinous offense against God and religion. That the true ground and reason for our obligations to be subject to the higher powers is the youth usefulness of the magistrate when properly exercised to human society and its subserviency to the general welfare. That obedience to civil rulers is here equally required under all forms of government which answer the sole end of all government, the good of society and every degree of authority in any state, whether supreme or subordinate, and it follows that if unlimited obedience to non-resistance be here required as a duty under any one form of government, it is also required as a duty under all other forms and as a duty to subordinate rulers as well as to the supreme. And lastly, that those civil rulers to whom the apostle enjoins subjection are the persons in possession, the powers that be, those who are actually vested with authority. Therefore, is one very important and interesting point which remains to be inquired into, namely the extent of that subjection to the higher powers, which is here enjoined as a duty upon all Christians. Some have thought it, as he would go on to say, warrantable and glorious to disobey civil powers in certain circumstances, and in cases of very great and general oppression when humble remonstrance fail of having any effect and when the public welfare cannot be otherwise provided for and secured to rise unanimously even against the sovereign himself in order to redress their grievances. Does that sound familiar? This was, this was in like 1750, a redress of grievances? First Amendment, I, I thought maybe you knew. I know you do, I'm messing with you. Redress their grievances to vindicate their natural and legal rights to break the yoke of tyranny and free themselves and posterity from
from inglorious servitude and ruin. The Greeks were the first to realize that man, when free, flourished. He's a remarkable creature. And then when faith came and Paul stood at the Areopagus, Mars Hill, and he saw these temples to all the gods and goddesses, and he saw one to the unknown God, and he used that as the segue to present the living God, Jesus. There's one God of all creation, and you and I are not him. He is a God of justice, and we are created in his image. And you have a purpose. He wants you to have life, and life more abundant. And he wants you to be free. Jonathan Mayhew wrote a sermon that resonated the eastern seaboard and transformed the hearts of, a, of the colonists to awaken to a rebellion against tyranny that would give you the nation you now enjoy. It began in the pulpits. A discourse concerning unlimited submission and non-resistance to the higher powers. Most of you wouldn't come to church if I put that title in advance. It's like, <laughs> my Jonathan Mayhew, Reverend Asserter of the civil and religious liberties of his country and mankind. He was a good dude. It is hoped that but few will think the subject of it an improper one to be discoursed on in the pulpit under a notion that this is preaching politics instead of Christ. How many times have I heard that one? <laughs> and it's not new. And you thought you would, not you, and they thought they had come up with it. Uh, I just preached the gospel. Whatever. However, to remove all prejudice of this sort, I beg it may be remembered that all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why then should not those parts of scripture which relate to civil government be examined and explained from the desk as well as others? Obedience to the civil magistrate is a Christian duty, and if so, why should not the nature, grounds, and extent of it be considered in a Christian assembly? Those nations who are now groaning under the iron scepter of tyranny were once free, so they might probably have remained by a seasonable caution against despotic measures. Civil tyranny is usually small in its beginnings like the drop of a bucket till at length like a mighty torrent of a raging waves of the sea it bears down all before and deluges whole countries and empires. I now add farther that the apostle's argument is so far from proving it to be the duty of people to obey and submit to such rulers as act in contradiction to the public good and so to be designed of their office that it proves the direct contrary. For, to, for, for please to observe that if the end of all civil government be the good of society, if this be the thing this is aimed at in consti uh, con consti constituting civil rulers, and if the motive and argument for submission to government be taken from the apparent usefulness of civil authority, it follows that when no such good end can be answered by submission, there remains no argument or motive to enforce it. I'll give you an illustration momentarily. If instead of this good end being brought about by submission, a contrary end is brought about and the ruin and misery of society affected by it, here is a plain and positive reason against submission in all such cases, should they ever happen. Tyranny brings ignorance and brutality along with it. It degrades men from their just rank into the class of brutes. It dampens their spirits, it suppresses arts, it extinguishes every spark of noble ardor and generosity in the beasts of those who are enslaved by it. It makes natural, strong, and great minds feeble and little and triumphs over the ruins of virtue and humanity. That's what's happening in our schools. Our kids are not 
growing in knowledge. They're being indoctrinated and they're becoming brutes, enslaved by stupidity. This is true of tyranny in every shape. There can be nothing great and good where its influence reaches, for which reason it becomes every friend to truth and humankind, every lover of God and the Christian religion to bear a part in opposing this hateful monster. Yeah. What unprejudiced man can think that God made all to be his, to be thus subservient to the lawless pleasure and frenzy of one, so that it shall be always be a sin to resist him? God's not like that. Submit to Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, Fauci. He writes, to conclude, let us all learn to be free, to be loyal. Let us not profess ourselves vassals to the lawless pleasure of any man on earth, but let us remember at the same time, government is sacred and not to be trifled with. It is our happiness to live under the government of a prince who is satisfied with ruling according to law as every other good prince will. We enjoy under his administration all the liberty that is proper and expedient for us it becomes us, therefore, to be content and dutiful subjects. Let us prize our freedom, but not use our liberty for a cloak of maliciousness. There are men who strike at liberty under the term of licentiousness. There are others who aim at popularity under the disguise of patriotism. Be aware of both. Extremes are dangerous. Suppose God requires a family of children to obey their father and not to resist him and enforces his command with this argument that the superintendence and care and authority of a just and kind parent will contribute to the happiness of the whole family so that they ought to obey him for their own sakes more than for his. Suppose this parent at length runs distracted and attempts in his mad fit to cut all of his children's throats now in this case, is it not the reason before assigned why these children should obey their parents while he continued of a sound mind, namely their common good, a reason equally conclusive for disobeying and resisting him, coming to cut their throats? Since he, next one, let's, not, let's go. This is no longer a good clicker, there we go. <laughs> Since he is becoming delirious and attempts their ruin, it makes no alteration in the argument whether this parent, properly speaking, loses his reason or does while he retains his understanding that which is as fatal in its consequence as anything he could do were he really deprived of it. This similitude needs no formal application. He's saying you don't submit to a father who's gone nuts and wants to cut your throat. God gave parents to do good for their children. When they cease to do good, they cease to be the authority. Kids, if your parents are beating you, come see me. Now, we, we, okay, you got spanked, that's not a beating. Okay, let, let's get through this. If you're being physically or sexually abused, I am a mandated reporter as is every staff member. Even, even man's government understands the heinous actions of your parents who are disguising themselves in the Christian cloak while they abuse you. That is not godly. For those of you who've experienced that growing up and the miracle that you're here, that that father you were hurt by has hindered your ability to see a good father in heaven but you've been healed. God doesn't demand you submit to that. If there's a wife in here being abused physically, that's not Romans 13. The Bible says wives submit to your husbands. You don't submit to evil. You don't do that in a family and you don't do it in a government. When they cease to do good, they cease to be the authority. We've forgotten that in this nation. They govern by our consent. We are the sovereign. 
We're the authority. Reread Romans 13 now under a constitutional republic and you'll see if you're a pastor or a Christian who wants to browbeat others by this passage, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. You know who that is in America? It's us. And there's no authority except from God. God established this nation with this understanding, with the first amendment that no government will get between God and man. Fascinating, that's why we flourished. Because America's good and that's why it's great. Whoever resists this authority. For this reason, governments were instituted among men for the preservation of those inalienable rights. You get in the way of that? We're gonna have a problem. And I close with eight minutes to do this. When do you rebel? Well, not for light and transient causes. I don't like the tax rate. I don't either, but I don't know that that is fascinating that a nation that rebelled against a king for intense taxation just hired 78,000 new IRS agents. I, all right, whatever, I, yeah. And, and gave them all guns, isn't that, yeah. Yeah, wow. Uh, this government's out of control. And they're violating the constitution they swore to defend. And every American better dust off that book, find out who you are and what you've been entrusted with, educate your children, and start standing in defiance of this tyranny. Every American. I will conclude with a, a perfect picture of bad government. And as we go into the next phase of their attempt of enslavement, wake up. There's no room for ignorance anymore. There's no one who's allowed on the sidelines. There's no compromise. We're either gonna to stand together or we're gonna to fall apart. You can't wait for someone else to do it. In the sphere of influence that you've been entrusted with, you must stand brave no matter what it costs. If you love the future for your children, your grandchildren, and the nation in which you've been entrusted. If your feeble short-sightedness of your pensions over principle is causing you to yield to tyranny at the expense of your neighbor, then do not read the scripture which says love your neighbor. The conclusion of verse eight in that passage does not apply to you, neither does the scripture, because you're pretending to be something you are not. Thrust upon us an unelected official, the most highly paid federal employee, Anthony Fauci. The death rate from COVID per million population as of September 30th, 2021, 2,107 deaths per 1 million in the United States. We surpassed Sweden, Iran, Germany, Cuba, Jamaica, Denmark, India, Finland, Vietnam, Norway, Japan, Pakistan, South Korea, Hong Kong, China. We ruined this nation of 331 million people. We destroyed an economy and we allowed this man to do it because we said nothing. I wanna share this and then I will conclude. Anthony Fauci seems to have not considered that his unprecedented quarantine of the healthy would kill far more people than COVID, obliterate the global economy, plunge millions into poverty and bankruptcy and grievously wound constitutional democracy globally. We have no, we have no way of knowing how many people died from isolation, unemployment, deferred medical care, depression, mental illness, drug overdose, obesity, stress, suicide, addiction, alcoholism, and the accidents that so often accompany despair. We cannot dismiss the accusations that his lockdowns proved more deadly than the contagion. 
A June 24th, 2021 BNJ study showed that U.S. life expectancy decreased by 1.9 years during the quarantine. Since COVID mortalities were mainly among the elderly and the average age of death of COVID in the UK was 82.4, which has above average lifespan, the virus could not by itself cause the astonishing decline. As we shall see, Hispanic and black Americans often shoulder the heaviest burden of Dr. Fauci's public health adventures and in this respect, his COVID-19 countermeasures proved no exception. Think of this. Delhi in India was experiencing a COVID epidemic crisis. The state government obliterated 97% of Delhi cases by distributing ivermectin, which Dr. Fauci took 6.1 million doses and destroyed them, outlawed them, separated you, from the most effective and controlled the media to tell you it was bad for you. Ivermectin crushed COVID in New Delhi. Following Ivermectin's introduction, according to trial site news, cases dropped dramatically at the national level. The massive surge that overtook the country at the beginning of April slowed exponentially after new COVID-19 protocol was introduced, which includes the use of Ivermectin and budesonide. India showed that early combination therapy, budesonide, ivermectin, zinc, costing between two and five dollars, made COVID symptoms disappear within three to five days by January 2021. A country of more than 1.3 billion people and a vaccine rate, ready for this? A vaccine rate, India, of 7.6% nationally had witnessed only 155,000 COVID deaths. By comparison, the US with a population of 331 million had recorded 357,000 deaths and they had a 57% vaccination rate. Many Indian officials and doctors considered ivermectin a miracle drug for controlling the outbreak. A natural ex uh, experiment involving two Indian states, Uttar Pradesh and Tamil Nadu, states within the, the nation of India, with opposite COVID strategies. One followed America's where you don't do anything until they're really sick and then you bring them in and you hit them with rendezvous. Yeah, which he has a patent on and gets bank. Forget a $3 dose of ivermectin. So one Indian state and another, one followed America's protocol, the other followed the ivermectin protocol. With 241 million people, Uttar Pradesh, this state has the equivalent of two thirds of the United States population. According to the Indian Express, Uttar Pradesh was the first state in the country of India to introduce large scale prophylactic, meaning taking it, waiting. If you do get it, you're prepared. You take a little dose every, every day, some. Large scale prophylactic and therapeutic use of ivermectin in May to June of 2020, a team at Agra, Uttar Pradesh's fourth largest city led by Dr. Anjul Parikh administered ivermectin to all uh, RRT team members in the district on an experimental basis and none of them developed COVID-19 despite being in daily contact with patients who had tested positive for the virus. Uttar Pradesh state surveillance officer added that based on the findings from Agra, the state government sanctioned the use of ivermectin as a prophylactic and then in September, Uttar Pradesh government announced that the state's 33 districts are virtually devoid of active cases, despite having a vaccination rate of 5.8%. The Hindustan Times reported overall that the state has a total of 199 active cases. It's, it's two thirds the size of America. While the positivity rate came down and to less than 0.01%, the recovery rate meanwhile has improved to 98.7%, when America's vaccination rate was at 57%, cases were still rising, the government was still imposing draconian restrictions, destroying the economy. And as of August 10th, 2021, the United States saw 161,990 new cases and 1,050 new deaths. Uttar Pradesh, in contrast, saw only 19 new cases and one death, more than 1,000 times lower than the US. And they go on to talk about the other uh, Indian state that followed America's protocols and their results were the same as America. I think that's something I don't need to obey, Dr. Fauci. Amen.
And there's a reason why he goes before uh, the crowd at the game to throw out the first pitch in Seattle, not a conservative town. And he is booed. Because believers and non-believers alike start to realize that man is a tyrant. But the church must awaken and return America to the one who will set them free. And that's Jesus. Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and let me pray for us all. I went long and I can't bring them up for a final song. I'm sorry. Lord, I thank you for this precious fellowship. I thank you for God's speak. I thank you for these men and women. I thank you for their love for freedom, which is instilled in them by you. They're drawn. They're drawn to that, that highest virtue, happiness. They know that there's something more in life and they want to accomplish that for which they were designed to do. They want their children to have a future and a hope to excel and succeed. They want a nation that in all of history, there's been none like it. They want this nation to have a new birth of freedom. And Lord, we, we gather and we thank you for your word and for the understanding of Romans 13 that this is a declaration that governments are here for our good and when they cease to do good, they cease to be the authority. But thank you, God, for a constitutional republic declaring who the sovereign in Romans 13 is. We, the people, are accountable to you and to each other. And those who govern in this nation govern by our consent. And they have no right, and nor will we tolerate them, injecting our children, destroying our businesses, killing our elderly, we're finished with that, Lord. And so God, please give us courage and strength that there be none remaining in this room that would cower to tyranny, but the why and what they would do would simply be you, Lord Jesus. That the world would know the truth and the truth would set them free. And Lord, you declared that you and you alone are the way and the truth and the life. And that no man comes to you, Father, except by Jesus. And that's good news. Because today, Jesus is here. And he says, come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden's light. This is a government of love. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I will forgive your sins. You come to me. I've already paid the price. The thief knew that. He knew he was guilty of what he had done, but he also knew Jesus was not. And he called him Lord. And all of us at this time in our life or at some point in our life before we step into eternity need to recognize two things. We have failed. We have fallen short. We are guilty, but Jesus is not. But he has lovingly paid the price and he has accomplished the justice that was required. That if you believe in your heart and you confess with your tongue that he is your Lord, you will be saved. Don't leave earth without him. May all who have heard my voice respond to that gift of salvation that we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift. It's not of works, lest anyone boast. Lord, you saved me. And Lord, if you saved me, you can save anybody. Thank you, Jesus. We honor you, we love you, we lift up your precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Yeah.